Hi, everyone. I'm Delilah Jones, the host of Imagine Publicity on Air. Welcome. Welcome. I'm looking forward to sharing featured guests from a variety of fields like authors, activists, artists, and then intersperse the show with occasional marketing tips for business, individuals, and nonprofits. So I hope this all appeals to everyone, of course. My guest today is Benjamin Risha. He is the author of the book, The Son of Seven Mothers, which was recently published and launched by Wild Blue Press. Be sure to get a copy at any of the online bookstores or through Wild Blue Press to read the details of the experience that we're going to talk about today. Just, uh, you know, a little bit about Benjamin. He is a survivor of the Tony Alamo Christian Foundation. He was actually born into it as the son of a Jewish mother and a Lebanese father who were members. And Benjamin's destiny was to bring peace on earth through this heritage. So what was orchestrated by Tony and Susan Alamo actually turned into a nightmare for their followers. So happy to have you today, Benjamin. Thank you very much, Delilah. I'm happy to be here also. Well, you know, I'm going to do a little bit different than than maybe what you're used to on some of the podcasts that you've done previously. You know, this is the point I usually ask authors for a brief background, uh, you know, about yourself. However, the whole book is your background. It's all about you and your experience. So um, what I'd like to do, let's, let's talk first of all about the history of the cult, the Tony Alamo Christian Foundation. Can you, let's start there and then bring everything Absolutely. else into play. Thank you. Yes, um, the organization was officially incorporated in 1969, um, but about five years before that, Tony and Sue really started their ministries. Susan Alamo was an Amy Simple McPherson protege, if you will. She followed her, she adored her, and talked about her ministry and its popularity. And Susan saw herself initially as an actress, but when she couldn't get work in Hollywood, she began to, um, like I said, uh, emulate Amy Simple McPherson. Tony Alamo, on the other hand, was a more or less a hustler. He he sold products on the streets. He had men that were kind of uh, in some ways kind of loyal to him and helped enforce um, debt payment and things like that. So he was a little bit of a toughie and known on the streets as a, as kind of a, as a scoundrel. But when the two met, Tony had um, he had just experienced a believe it or not an LSD experience that he claims God spoke to him uh, during. Um, And he met Susan preaching to people on the streets, and the message resonated. Um, When the two met, they they exchanged uh, pleasantries, of course, but they were in the presence of Susan's daughter who witnessed the account, and she thought that they were um, initially – two hustlers trying to hustle each other and they didn't realize that neither of them were more or less broke. (laughs) They didn't have the money to, to even pay for the bill at the bar in which they met. 
but their ministry took off after they quickly recruited um, a young model, a woman. Um, she was about 17 years old at the time, very attractive woman. And then after that, they, attra- they recruited about nine or ten young men who were from different walks of life. Some, one was a successful um, a lawyer in, um, in law school. Another one, or excuse me, had just graduated law school, and others had been people from the streets and from local businesses in the Hollywood area. And with that group of nine or ten people, they began proselytizing. And by 1969, they incorporated and they had about 300 members living um, more or less in one property, one or two properties in the in the hills there in in Los Angeles. Well, you know, being in the 60s, 70s era, you know, the the era of peace, love, movement, and communes and all of that, I'm sure, you know, how easy was it for them to find followers, and how did all of that play into it when they were recruiting members? That That's a great question, Delilah, and that's exactly – that was something I, re- I wanted to show in the book, and I'm not sure I got to do a, a good enough job of it, but the peace and love movement was essentially at its heyday and, and, and really fading by, by 1969. It was, um, it was still high. It was still really strong. But that movement, as it faded into the 70s, it was very easy to, to find people, find recruits, people that were um, in some ways vulnerable people but also people who were looking for meaning in, the, in, in their life, which, which is a normal process of, of, human, of human development, I think. And um, they did not have a problem once they started offering a free meal and free housing. I think that was a very attractive option to the people who had been um, traveling, um, you know, in, in the United States from Woodstock out to uh, Haight-Nashbury in California. And, and so – they really did take advantage of that movement's decline, the peace and love movement's decline, and the hippie movement. Yeah, in, in 1969, it definitely did. You know, I think that was the year Charlie Manson, um, that whole episode, and that was kind yeah. of that was kind of the the end of peace and love as, as I remember it. I I was. Um, not involved, involved, but definitely grew up in the same era. So I can understand how, you know, so many people of the, of my generation, let's say, in that particular time were actually looking for something different, looking for something beyond the establishment. And, you know, do you think we're, we're as a society, maybe kind of in that similar situation now? I do. I, I really do. I think that there are a lot of people who are looking for answers. They're looking for someone to tell them this is the way. And we go through these cycles, I think, in if you look at history, you'll see that um, in the United States. We, we, we go through that, I think, in the world at large also. But, yeah, we are definitely in a cycle like that. Um, I, I'm not sure how much I can mention the Trump organization and what they've offered the – Republican Party and and the conservative movement, but they've essentially, I believe he has offered them that sort of leadership, that cult of personality, and that the easy answers and the, well, 
like this cult leader, Tony Alamo, he used fear to manipulate people. I believe that's also what's been going on. But I don't want to digress too far into into modern politics. <laughs> right. Um, we could do a whole show on that, I'm sure. Yeah, we could do a whole show on that. <laughs> but, um, well, but it's, yeah. Well, I was just going to go back a little bit and ask you about your parents. How how did your parents become involved? Yeah, well, so my mother my mother's father passed away when she was just to go back a little bit. My mother's father passed away a couple years before she headed out to the West Coast from Brooklyn, New York. So, um her and her friends had attended Woodstock and were very much enthralled by by that idea of peace and love and brotherhood and sisterhood amongst all. And when he died, I believe it left a a vacancy in her heart in 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 her in her life. When she went out to the West Coast, she went with a group of friends. They they were supposed to drive a, an old taxi car that some uh, a West Coast man had purchased from someone in New York. They drove it across country. And one of her friends decided to go to Hollywood before, uh, kind of leave the group a little bit ahead of time. And he got recruited into the organization. And when he, when she went to go meet him, he was give, preaching this message of peace and love combined with hellfire and damnation. And if you don't get right with God, you're going to burn in hell kind of thing. And she immediately thought, believe it or not, that this is a cult that he's in, and she wanted to go get him out. So she went to the organization. She went to a service at night, and she fell in love with the music. The music that these guys played was second to none. They had um, full orchestra. I mean, I think it was I, – I don't even know how many instruments were in it, but it was large enough to, to fill a, you know, a small stadium, and she fell in love with that. She fell in love with the music. And then the message that Susan Alamo preached um, kind of locked her in. It gave her that purpose that she was missing. And then all of the brothers, all of the people that were around her were her age, and they looked like her, and they talked like her, and they, they had a, a, a brotherhood and sisterhood that she immediately fell in love with. That, that's how my mom got recruited into the group. There's a um, sense of belonging, um, you know. We're sense every, of belonging. Yeah, every human out there is looking for something to belong yeah, to. Absolutely, and and there was, you know, there was no child abuse at the time. There was there was nothing um, harmful going on at the at, at at that time. Now, of course, they were still using groupthink tactics to control everybody, but the people in it didn't realize that's what was happening. What they thought was hey, we are learning the word of God. We're eventually going to bring the message of God to the rest of the world. We're going to leave this place once we, once we have our, um, the knowledge that we need, once we're strong enough to leave. They believe that they would eventually leave the place and go start their own ministries. That was the intention. My, my father, I should say that was the intention of the group, my father um, also joined for similar reasons. He came from a family of nine. He was the youngest of nine. And um, when he was actually, I think he was about 11 years old, he got stabbed in the, right near the heart. And uh, some kids, some people robbed him when he was a little kid, took his, his lunch money <laughs> of all things. And he, got, he went to the hospital. He got put on morphine. 
And at the time, back in the 60s, I don't think they really understood the addictive properties of it, but he got hooked on it. He went out to the West Coast from Detroit, and he was using heroin, smoking heroin. And when he met people at the church, they offered, said, hey, we can get you off this if you want. We have a we have an alternative to drugs. And sure enough, he joined the group, was clean, and um, he fell in love with the people there. And then, and so that's that's how they joined. I don't know if you want to go into how they eventually married. But. Well, yeah, I think what I took away from, you know, from reading your book, I thought it was interesting that it was kind of a, uh, I don't want to say destiny, but it, I can't think of the right word, yeah. but it, it'll come to me later, I'm sure, but it was kind of not really an arranged marriage, but yet it was, and when you came along, this was an, a, a total turnaround, correct? Correct. It was... Uh, Arranged is a close is a very close word that that some Americans might identify with when they think of other other cultures arranging marriages. Maybe you might think of India, you know, in the caste system they arrange marriages quite often. It was more of a pressured marriage. It was a marriage under a cooker pressure. That's how I think my mom would describe it. My mother would describe that, and um, I think they. They both saw, um, they both saw the future, or they 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 thought they were seeing the future in me, in in, in their union. They 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 really believed that they could change the world. They thought that were the world destiny hinged on their marriage, and the fact that the prophecies in the Book of Revelation say Jesus won't come back until there is peace in the middle in in, in Israel, and. If, you, if we get into that, we we can get into some uh, quite esoteric readings of the of the word. But essentially, without peace, the second coming of Jesus Christ couldn't happen. And so, while my mother my mother fell in love, I said with the music there, she also fell in love with the musician there, and she married that musician, and he died there. And when he died, they had already had two children. And this isn't my father. This is my my mother's first husband. They had two children, and when he died, Tony and Sue really, really um, berated her from the pulpit in front of the co- entire community, saying that she didn't have enough faith to keep him alive and that God took his soul so that she wouldn't bring him down into hell. And they started persecuting her because she she would stand up to them, believe it or not, at times and say, this is what the Bible says. And when, when she started seeing that they were preaching more of a hate and anti-Catholic and fear-based message, she would stand up and say, no, God is love. God is, God is not vengeful. He's merciful. He's kind. So she would stand up to them. They didn't like that, and they used the death of her first husband as a pretext to persecute her. While she was mourning the death of her first husband, that's when Tony and Sue came to her and said, God told us to, you need to marry Edward Risha, my father. And she did not know what to do. She, she was completely um, beside herself. And eventually through, I mean, if you, if you read the book, you'll see she was working long hours in hard labor after having two children. Um, they really 
they persecuted her from the pulpit, but they also broke her down physically. And so the combination of those two things, she eventually gave up and said, okay, I'll marry him. And so that's the kind of pressure cooker she was under was hard labor, persecution, the duress of being a mother. It's a very, it's, you know, having children is not, is not an easy thing um, necessarily. And she, she succumbed to the pressures of the cult and, and really wanted, I think, to, to believe that, yeah, the union with my father would be some sort of prophetic um, fulfillment. But I, I think also at the same time, she, she was suffering a lot. She was really suffering. Well, were, were you, or your mother and your father, once this, um, you know, marriage took place, were they also pressured to produce an heir? Absolutely. That's when um, at, initially my mother and father, um, so they, they had a marriage, but when they went to the um, the city to, to make it illegal, you know, to get their marriage certificate, my mom deceived my father essentially and said, hey, you know, I'm not going to uh, – she, she didn't get the certificate. So the, the marriage was not legal. It was just a informality only. And eventually my father told Tony and Susan that they weren't sleeping together. And they hadn't slept together for months after the marriage. And Tony and Sue pressured my mother and, and came to her and said, hey, we found out you're not – you need to fulfill your, your biblical obligation." And my mother and father did that eventually. But it was not without um, an intervention by the cult leaders, by the by who were still my mother's spiritual leaders. She hadn't really figured out that they were in a cult yet, um, even though I think she – she knew initially that her friend was in something like that. She, uh, yeah, she she eventually broke down with them and and listened to them. So okay, so then you were born. Yep. With the destiny of saving the earth, and <laughs> and the destiny of you know bringing Jesus back, so that you know all of the Christians can live happily ever after in paradise. But how was your childhood experience different from other children in the cult? Um, I, I guess, you know, I, I would like for you to explain that a little bit. And then I would also like to know when did you realize that your normal wasn't exactly normal? That's a, those are really good questions. So let me, I'll, I'll I'll show the contrast between my life and other people's life, and then I will answer how I how I eventually figured that out. Um, so the most obvious um, sign that, or yeah, the most obvious sign that my life of what my life was like compared to other people was what I had in my immediate surroundings. I I grew up in a mansion, a twenty three hundred square foot. No, excuse me, sorry. 1,300 square foot, 13,000, sorry, is a huge, huge building, a mansion of just epic proportions. It could hold um, your modern-day house. It could probably hold three or four, you know, four-bedroom homes inside of it. And the furniture was all collector's antiques. There were fur rugs. There were paintings from supposedly from French aristocrats um, from their homes. And there were Rothschild gems. There was 
um, there was a limousine and um, pink Cadillacs outside my house. There, there was uh, we had people driving us everywhere in our limos. We ate food that was driven all the way from California out to Arkansas, all organic vegetables on a multi-week basis. Every couple of days we'd get a truck delivery. So what I grew up with, I mean, it was it was really uh, just a, a plush environment, if I could if I could uh, paint it as that. There was a we had a painting of of a, a mural of cherubs that was um, descending and ascending into heaven, and that that painting alone was probably a twenty by ten you know mural. It was huge, humongous. Just the opulence was kind of gross, if you will. And Tony and Sue said that was because God blessed his, his messengers when in reality, you know, they were making money off of their, their, their followers. But, um, the, the, my peers, the children that, that I went to school with, they lived in small homes whose furniture was populated from Walmart. If, if it was populated at all, um, their clothes were, you know, four to five years old and used. My clothing was brand new, custom made. Um, I went and traveled around the United States with these guys to um, uh, clothing shows where we sold some of the clothing that we designed. Um, I went and visited, you know, everything from the Grand Ole Opry to the Grand Canyon um, and everything in between. Um, that was that was on a, you know, a kind of a yearly basis. But then while Tony and Sue preached, they often would preach about me and, and use me as an example to the community saying, this is, this is the, this is how your children should be and comparing me to them and, and using me as a standard to say, this is, this is, we raised this young man to be godly. And this is how your children should be. Um, now, when Susan Alamo died, I believed, I believe my, my, my mom, my grandma, I would call her grandma Susie, but I called her granny. I believe she would raise from the dead. And we, Tony said that she would raise from the dead. Sue said she would raise from the dead in three days. They didn't raise from the dead. She didn't raise from the dead, excuse me, even though we prayed over her body in an open casket for six months to a year. I mean, can you, if you can imagine that, on the fourth day, I began to doubt. I began to doubt that she was a prophet and that Tony Alamo was a prophet. And that's when I began to really kind of question, even though I was only seven, I still had enough knowledge of the Bible to know that if a prophet made a prophecy and it didn't come true, that he was a false prophet. And as much as I loved, loved my papa, Papa Tony, as much as I loved him and as much as I loved Grandma Susie, they lied, and that was all I needed because we were taught not to lie. I, I was taught, especially, always tell the truth, and um, they taught me that the world was watching me, and if I lied, that it had implications to the world. So here I am now telling you this story, and what what I realized then was that I was beginning to descend from their grace. And Tony, when Susan died, I was taken from the mansion and put into one of the smaller houses with the family. 
um, that was uh, those that had other children, and it was a, a great family, but it was a small little home. I shared a bedroom. I didn't have my own private room. Um, you know, we didn't have food in the refrigerator. I definitely didn't get to drive around in limousines anymore. My clothes began to get older as time went on, and I had to, you know, wear three- and four-year-old clothes, use clothes from Goodwill, and that was part of that was part of my transition to realizing, hey, I'm just a regular, a regular person. And, and why do you think? Why did he do that to you? What was it? You didn't do anything wrong, you, but in a sense, you had the fall from grace. Yeah, I, I had the fall from grace. Um, I think. Uh, I think. Well, looking back at Tony Alamo's life, what what he did after Susan died, he he dated. A, a woman named Elizabeth Amrine, and that I think he tried to get married. I think he tried to marry her, but eventually their relationship fell apart. And then another year or two later after that, he met Brigida, and Brigida looked like a younger version of Susan. So I think Tony was really searching for another mate to take Susan's place, and he couldn't have me around. He couldn't. He couldn't take care of me in the mansion. So he had another family take care of me. So there was some altruism involved in that, in that he was looking out for my best interest um, while he went out and tried to find another partner. Well, and I would say it, you as a child probably saw a little more of the outside world than a lot of the other children in the sense that, you know, you were all isolated and not really exposed to outside influences, but I would think, you know, because you got to go on trips, you got to do all of these vacations Mm -hmm. and things like that. Did you notice anything in the outside world that sort of tripped or switched that something was different here? That is another really good question. So, yes, um, one time I was probably six years old, might have been five, five or six, and we went to New York, and we were doing a, a show. I was modeling clothing, and at night, our when when the show would shut down, Tony and the brothers, who you know we we called all the men in the church brothers, and so we kind of had an entourage. We had a limousine, and we had a van, and the brothers were in the van, and me and Papa Tony were in the limo. We were driving around New York like going back to our hotel and Tony had the limousine pull over and I'll, I just, it just was, this is burned in my memory. I had never seen anything like this. He, there was a woman wearing like a fishnet suit, like a, that was her clothing. She was a, a prostitute on the, she was standing on the street corner. Tony pulled the limo over and started talking to her and you know, my initial thought thinking is he's preaching to her, but he handed her something and he stuffed it into her right next to her breast. And for me, seeing an almost naked woman on the street and Tony giving her money was a, it it just kind of, it didn't feel right. It felt like he was enjoying the situation a little bit too much, you know, and he, he was not prostitute. He wasn't preaching to her. He was flirting with her, and he was trying to, I'm not, you know, he was trying to solicit her. 
of course, I was in the car, and he couldn't ask her to get into the car with him. And I think uh, he was a little bit disappointed, and that night um, I got reprimanded for for something silly, like like not brushing my teeth or something, and he he sent me to go stay with the brothers that night. I couldn't stay in the same room where he was at. And I don't know what he did later that evening, but when he was talking to this, this woman on the street, it it really felt awkward that he was spending so much time and having his hands so close to her body um, and even even touching her that it was just uh, – it was an aha moment for me. And it really kind of uh, – it woke me up a little bit, you know, seeing that. Exactly. So, you know, now that you're waking up, as you just said, how did you finally escape from the grip of the cult? And and what exactly does it mean to you to call yourself a survivor? Okay. So the path to escape was quite twisty and turny. Um, When I was 13 years old, a friend of mine showed me a picture of two children and they said, this is your brother and sister. And I said, yeah, you know, I've got lots of brothers and sisters. You know, of course I grew up with, you know, hundreds of of brothers and sisters. And they said, no, these are your biological brother and sister. They came from the same mother as you. And that, that was also an aha moment that clicked. And I was like, Oh, I came from a single woman. I didn't have that concept because I grew up with so many mothers uh, well, seven to be exact. And um, when that happened, I began asking questions like, who is this mother that had me and where is she? And the only response I got from the elders and the leaders was that she she was an adulteress, she died, and she was in hell. So that happened. And right as I began to really try to get more answers from people that I trusted, then the beating started, the physical beatings um, like I said, I was 13. I began noticing girls. My friends, I, had, I was in a group of children of about 20 kids, 10, 10 girls and maybe 11 or 12 boys in my age group. They, they broke us up by groups. Well, you know, we would hold hands. A couple of kids got caught kissing. There was light fondling, and we all got caught, and we got beat horribly. I mean, like held in the air by my arms and legs, suspended in the air while by four men while a fifth man with a huge board beat us. And the girls had the same thing happen, but with a belt. And one of the girls got like 80 swats with the belt, and the pain was so much that she almost passed. She did pass out. We thought she died. When that happened, I, the next day, I felt a void in my life. I felt a darkness in me that was darker than any night. I don't know how to explain it other than saying it was a void. There was an emptiness in me that I had never felt before. And that I knew was not biblical. I, I just knew it, like in my core, but I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. It wasn't long after that. It was about two years after that that the federal government raided our property, took everything, and kicked us off the property. And when that happened, I went out to the world. I'm doing air quotes. We went out and lived in the world and – the ground literally did not open up and swallow me like I had been believed if I had ever left the property that that would happen. Instead, I met, I met girls. I had friends that were non-Christian, you know, non, 
not our form of faith. They weren't part of our group. And nothing was happening to me. God was not punishing me. Um, I was not, you know, like I said, I wasn't consumed into the fiery bowels of hell with the ground opening up because I wasn't uh, praying and reading like Tony told me I should. When the beatings and then I saw life for what it really was, those things made me really begin to question even more whether or not I should even be in this place. And with that in my heart and the group disbanded, Tony then had the group try to reorganize, and my family that I was living with was in charge of, a, of an office. And that office had all the records in the church um, stored in, in the office, and they put me in charge of the office at night. At that time, I was about 16 years old, a young 16-year-old. I wasn't allowed to talk to girls. I wasn't allowed to communicate in any way. I had no, no, no friends of the opposite sex, and I had no sexual outlets. Sexual ed, sex ed was not taught. Sex before marriage was not allowed. I began looking through the records, this, all these office records, for pictures of, like in Sears catalogs, believe it or not, of women in bras. That was the extent of my sexual activity. But instead of finding that, I found my birth certificate, and I found a biography of my mother, and I saw a picture of my mom, and I found a picture of my father who had left the group. Um, and I began to call information I, I, around the United States, 555-1212, and I, would, I had a list of area codes. It was right as the Internet was just starting. There was an old uh, prodigy system that was on a computer, and it gave me a list of all the uh, area codes that matched my birth certificate um, that, where, my, where it said my mother was from. Long story short, I found it. I found an old well, – do, do we want to get into that, how I escaped, or just what led me up to the escape? No, go ahead. Yes, I think okay. that's a very important part. And, you know, I, I don't want to give away everything because yeah, I want okay. people yeah. to buy your book. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I think that's that's quite important. But, I, I, yes, I would like I would like listeners to know, you know, how you got out of this. Yeah. So in short, in short, it was the combination of Susan Alamo not raising from the dead, me knowing that Tony was a false prophet my friends getting beaten horrifically and myself getting beaten. Um, and th that one beating was just one, one instance. There were multiple beating instances, but this one was so over the top that the, it, it really pushed me to question um, the religious right. Uh, and I mean, right as in the ability or the, the legality, the morality of the situation. And then the, the real world, not, not being what they told me it was, and then me looking for my, 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 my parents and finding out that they were alive. I'll leave it at that. But those four things all coalesced into a perfect moment where I, um, I planned my escape. At, and, yeah, and it's, 16. you know, all of this is, is just a fascinating, it's, and I hate to call it a story. You know, it's it's not a story. This is your life. And the way that you've told it in your book is, um, you know, anyone who has studied culture or even has any 
information about cults will get a lot out of this. And, and I'd like to kind of segue into cults in general. And it seems like, you know, they're quite prevalent. And, you know, even though we hear more about the so-called famous ones and their atrocities like Tony Alamo, the LDS Church and Warren Jeffs, you got Jim Jones and the People's Temple, the Moonies and the followers mm-hmm. of Osho. And mm-hmm. in your opinion and with the experience that you lived through, what do you feel like, what type of a person follows a cult leader and why? So, so the, the type really varies I mean but what I've noticed it's just what I've noticed and it's it's contrary to what the cult leaders say it's the exact opposite most cult leaders contend that their followers are either drug addicts or not you know non-intelligent people who can't make up their mind usually at least in my group this group highly intelligent human beings people with degrees people that studied people that were very, very smart, and that's what the cults use to flip the person. They once they can figure out an angle for the person to how, how to put leverage on them, they put that leverage on them and they break them. And now that intelligence that would normally be a critical eye at a, looking at a cult is now a critical eye look, promoting the cult. And so there's something that happens with with the personality where. They, they kind of flip, and it happens slowly. I don't think it happens, like, overnight. I think it's a slow, like, boiling a frog in, in water. You heard that saying, if you drop him in the water, boiling water, he'll jump out. But if you slowly turn it up, you'll get frog soup. Not that anyone wants to eat frog soup. But um, so I don't I – think, I think if there is a – type it's that the person might be looking for something they might be looking for answers they might be looking for some sort of clarity about life that because life is often murky it's gray it's there it's not always clear of what direction to go if if you're not um as rational well maybe even rational even rational people get caught up in cults what am i saying there's so many reasons for um, for joining a group, but I, I think they're, they're they're looking for some kind of meaning. That would probably be the common denominator. They're not. It's not that they're not intelligent. It's not that they're not. You know that they're on drugs and they've been, you know, cleansed all. You know, all of a sudden, it's that they're looking. They're seeking in for. They're seeking. What What else did you ask, Delilah? What was the other part of the question? Well, I, I think I think you answered it quite well, but I, I want to kind of flip the question a little bit. And yeah. you know, you you've explained to us very well about the so-called type of person who is easier to get involved in a cult. But what about the cult leaders? What what type of person becomes a cult leader? That it, it it always it always makes me question. It's like you know I I look at Tony Alamo, I look at Jim Jones, and some of these other people, and I'm like, who who in the world would follow them, and what kind of message are they really getting out there? But you know, I I do you have an opinion on what type of person it takes to become a cult leader? I, I do. I, I I believe there's a level of narcissism 
at the base of each cult leader. I think there's a certain level where they don't care about people. They just pretend that they do and that they hold themselves and their personal um, their personal satisfaction as the as their core guiding principle, but they do it in a way where they take a message and they use the message to get and, and accomplish their narcissism. There's probably a level of sociopathic or pathology that that is also involved. Um, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't get too into it, but just from researching cult leaders and narcissists, narcissists um, I've seen I've seen that at a very base, but that's that's probably an obvious thing. Um, I think at the core of some of these guys are people that they have a strong desire to be accepted. I mean, that's they 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 want people to love them more than they even love themselves. Having said that, you're, you're right. When you look at some of these people, you're like, who would ever follow these guys? But once you're in the cult and you've you've shown you know to use the phrase drinking the Kool Aid once you drink the Kool Aid, then they appear to be greater than life. It's 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 I don't know if I'm making the segue to explain that well enough, but they they slowly begin to believe the message. They slowly begin to believe the leader is synonymous with the message. So. If I came to you and told you, hey, drink this poison Kool-Aid, you're, you're, you're not going to do that. But if, if I and you see me as, as someone greater than, greater than you that's, you know, in connection with a greater force, a greater, you know, whether it be God or the Hill Bob Comet or whatever it is, you're, gonna, you're probably going to follow what I say more likely than not. And that's where, that's where people start to – vulnerable people, I believe, start to uh, do horrific things. I guess it always makes me wonder, where do these people come from? I mean, they're they're not teaching how to be a cult leader in theology classes, I'm sure. And they seem to just sort of pop up as a grassroots um, initiative to begin with. And, and just like you explained earlier, Tony and Susan Alama were looking for fame and riches and that was the way they figured mm-hmm. out how to get it mm-hmm. so I, um, I just want your opinion on that where do they come yeah from? if yeah if i could i'll answer that in a, just in two parts if i could plug the international cultic studies association um they have great training on what these cult leaders and how they start and believe it or not it's almost as if they're following a playbook it's almost as if somebody wrote a book and said, this is how to start a cult. Do X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C, and you will have a cult. Because they all do the same things. They use music to relax the person when they come into the thing. You know, They use different sounds, believe it or not, in the environment uh, to, to relax the human being, to relax the person. Once the person is relaxed and they come in with an alpha voice, that alpha voice has a message. That message tells them to do certain things like abandon your family, abandon your friends. We are your new family and we're your new friends. Then it slowly, then they slowly start to break them down with the, the power of the group. 
if if a cult leader only had one person, it wouldn't be a cult. But once you start getting two and three people involved, they start people start playing off of each other. They say to themselves, "Well, that person's not complaining about not eating today. I shouldn't complain either." And then the cult leaders there say, "God will damn you if you complain about not eating your food today, or for going without sleep for the next week." And then they they turn around the oppression that they're asking their followers to do as as signs of uh, 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 badges of honor, signs of honor. You're doing this like Christ did it, might be an example. Christ went without food for 30 days. You can go without food for two weeks. You know, so the, the International Cultic Studies Association, the group that I plugged, they have great training on this, and I, I wish I had more time and um, to go study to really understand what they're doing, but I can tell you it's almost as if there's a playbook, and they follow it to the T. That's interesting. I'm I'm going to have to look that up, and I'll put it in. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if I can. Um, okay. So, you know, pulling all this together, what advice you know can you give people? To, how do you determine if if your faith community is actually a cult, and if you figure out that it is, how do you safely, you know, get away from it? Okay, so it's a tricky question because, no, I should say it's a tricky answer because once you're in a group like that, by the time you, well, by the time you realize that it's a cult, chances are you've already given large amounts of resources, you've alienated your family and your friends, and in order, to es- in order to escape it, you have to have people on the outside. So I would broaden the question just a little bit more. Instead of making it about you, I would make it about the people who love you. I would say to the people that recognize that their loved ones may have been put, may have been, may have been tricked into joining a cult, just to be there for them, not to not to pressure them, believe it or not. Do not put pressure on someone who has joined a cult. Just be kind to them. Let them know that you're out there and that you're there for them. Because the person inside is like being in a fish in a, in a bubble. They're looking and all they see is their own reflection. They're not able to see outside the world and realize that they're in a cult. If you do, though, what you'll need is a network of people to support you when you get out. Too many people get joined into these groups and, you know, one day turns into a month, a month turns into a year, and a year turns into ten. And before you know it, you've given everything you've got, you have no work history, and now you're really screwed. You're really telling yourself, I have nowhere else to go. And that's the worst feeling. So what you need is your family to be outside. Hopefully they will still love you and no matter what you've said to them because you will the, – the, the inculcated person will say things to alienate the family because that's how what they're trained to do. But it's really important just to be there for them and not, not turn them away because they will eventually hopefully come out. That's very good advice, very good. And how are you doing today? I mean, are you still in touch <laughs> with some of the people you grew up with, um, your parents? How are you? Yeah. Thanks, Zyla. That's a really great question. I, I'm well. I, um, I've done 
probably 20 years of therapy. I've had to, I've had to do a lot of cognitive behavior therapy. Um, I'm actually hopefully going to train to be a licensed, uh, a licensed therapist here in Washington state, uh, starting soon, but I'm, I'm doing well. I am in communication with a lot of my friends that were in the group and have dipped their toes back into it because leaving a cult, it's like, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's, uh, you, you might be able to leave it physically, but the, it leaves entrails in you. It leaves long, there's these long tentacles that just stay in the brain and stay in the mind and stay in the heart and the body really for that matter. And so a lot of, some of my friends have left, but they, they still have the mentality that, that, that they should be doing things that the cult taught them or, or they believe that the abuse they endured was, was okay because they were sinners or some, something to that effect. And my biggest struggle is sometimes working with these people. And just, like I said, I just let them know, Hey, I'm here if you need me. And, and that's all I can, that's all I can offer. But I'm well. I'm strong and happy and healthy. Well, that's definitely, <laughs> definitely you. good to hear. Well, our our time is running out. Where can our listeners get your book, and where can we find you online? Well, you can find me online at Benjamin Risha, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-I-S-H-A, BenjaminRisha.com. Um, you can stay in contact with me there. I've got an email there. The book can be found at Wild Blue Press or on Amazon. If you uh, do a search for The Son of Seven Mothers, it will come up. And then this is a a fascinating book, at least it was to me. And again, I I hate to call it your story because it is your life. And I think readers are going to be shocked and amazed and, you know, they're going to get a lot out of it, and and so I I encourage everyone get out there find find your copy of this book at Wild Blue Press or if you have to order it from Amazon, The Son of Seven Mothers. And I thank you so much, Benjamin, for sharing all of this with with us today. Thank you, Delilah. It was my sincere pleasure. Thank you. You bet. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. Uh, please follow Imagine Publicity on air wherever you're listening to this podcast for future episodes.